This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by Safety Focus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Happy New Year. Hope uh, your 2023 is off to a great start. And thank you for joining us today for a conversation about OSHA record keeping. This is, of course, you know, such a huge topic for both employers and safety professionals. And I'm very happy to welcome Brandy Bossel Zadorian, CEO and Principal Consultant of Triangle Safety Consulting, LLC, who is going to share what you need to know about recording and reporting to OSHA. Brandy, welcome. Happy New Year. How are you? Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you. Excited for our conversation. Uh, let's uh, let's dive in. So uh, we're talking about OSHA record keeping, and I thought we could start by kind of giving folks, you know, an an overview uh, of the process. Kind of talk about the basics and you know the most important things for employers and safety professionals to remember for recording and reporting to OSHA. Yeah, so let's start with the OSH Act. So the Occupational Safety and Health Act or the OSH Act, it covers almost all private sector employers and their workers through either federal OSHA or an OSHA approved state plan. And companies under the OSH Act are covered by part 1904, which is what we're gonna be talking about today. And that's the standard for recording and reporting occupational injuries and illnesses. The purpose of part 1904 is to require employers to record and report work-related fatalities, injuries, and illnesses. But in my opinion, there's also benefits for employers to maintaining these records, such as keeping tracks of the types of incidents arising in the workplace, and then, you know, employers can then use that track data from the OSHA 300 forms to improve the safety program by kind of, you know, focusing on those areas where employees are getting hurt and then, you know, recognizing those trends and addressing them. So as far as the scope for keeping OSHA injury and illness records, there are two partial exemptions, one for low hazard industries and one for size exemption. So for the size exemption, if you have 10 employees or less at all times throughout the year, you are not required to keep OSHA records. So you want to keep in mind that the size exemption is based on the number of employees in the entire company and not only at one individual establishment. So to recap, if you have 11 employees or more throughout the year, you must keep injury or illness records. If you have 10 employees or less, you are not required to keep the injury and illness records. Now, as far as the low hazard exemption, there is an Appendix A to the subpart B in the 1904 regulations, and it lists the partially exempt companies or industries. And this list is based on your company's NAICS code. I call it the NAICS code. It's also called the North American Industry Classification System Code. And you can check this list to see if your company applies for the partial exemption. But just to give you some examples of the types of industries on this list, 
Um, there's florists, there's gas stations, full service restaurants, and dentist offices. So those are the types of industries you'll find on this uh, Appendix A to Subpart B. And so if you do apply for either of these partial exemptions, size or low hazard industry, then you do not have to record recordable injuries on the OSHA 300, 301, or 300A summary form. And the last thing I want to talk about with these partial exemptions, the reason they're called partial exemptions is because if you apply for them, so the low hazard industry or the size exemption, you don't have to keep the record keeping forms, which are also called the OSHA 300 logs. Um, but however, your company must still report uh, incidents that apply to the criteria for reporting to OSHA, which I will, I believe we'll be discussing in a, in a little bit. Indeed. And I, I'm glad you mentioned the 300 forms uh, there. And I thought we could kind of dive a little deeper into that. As you mentioned, the 300, the 300A and the 301. So that maybe we could talk a little bit more about each of those and the purpose each one serves. Yeah, of course. So there are three record keeping forms. There's the OSHA 300, the 300A and the 301 form. So I'm going to go into each one as far as the OSHA uh, Form 300. This is the log of work-related injuries and illnesses. And this form must be kept throughout the year and you will have to document the details of the recordable incidents on this form, including the employee name, uh, what department the injury occurred in, and what the actual injury was. And then you'll then have to classify the recordable incident and you'll have to track the number of days away and the, and the days of restricted work if that's even applicable to the incident that occurred. So when a recordable incident occurs, this is the form where you need to document the, the, the details essentially. And something to remember about the OSHA 300 form is that if a work-related recordable injury does occur, you need to document it on the on the OSHA 300 form within seven calendar days of learning about the about the injury. Now for the OSHA form 301, so this is the injury and illness incident report. This form also must be kept throughout the year to document individual recordable injuries or illnesses. So the Form 301, essentially, it's a report you can use to investigate the recordable incident. However, I know a lot of companies use their own forms to document and investigate incidents, and you can absolutely do that as long as you're capturing the same information on the Form 301 and it's easy to read. And for the OSHA Form 300A Summary, so this form is the summary of work-related injuries and illnesses, and it must be completed after the end of the, of the year that summarizes the number of recordable injuries and illnesses that occurred the previous year. So just an example, 2022 just ended, it's now 2023. So you're going to need to create your OSHA 300A summary that summarizes the data on the OSHA 300 log. So first you wanna ensure that your 2022 OSHA 300 log 
of work-related injuries and illnesses is complete and correct. Then after reviewing your OSHA 300 log, you take the totals from that OSHA 300 log to create your OSHA 300A summary. You then want to certify the 300A summary with a signature from a company executive. So using our example of 2022 just ending, you will then need to post the OSHA 300A summary from, from February 1st to April 30th, 2023 in a visible location where the company would normally post news or other information you'd want to you know, tell employees about. And then as far as record keeping, these forms, these OSHA logs, 300, 301, and 300A summary, they must be kept for five years. And another thing to remember about these forms is that if a government representative like OSHA asks to see these forms, you must provide copies of the records within four business hours. Some companies are required to not only post their 300A summary, but also to submit them electronically to OSHA through the injury tracking application or also called ITA. And establishments that meet any of the following criteria that I'm gonna talk about, they do not have to electronically report their information to OSHA. Also, it's important to remember that these criteria apply at the establishment level and not to the company as a whole. So if your company meets any of the three criteria that I'm about to discuss, again, you do not have to electronically report your 300A summary to OSHA. So the first criteria is the establishment's peak employment during the previous calendar year was 19 or fewer, regardless of the establishment's industry. The second criteria is that the establishment's industry is on Appendix A to Subpart B of OSHA's Record Keeping Regulation, Part 1904, regardless of the size of the establishment. So the industries on Appendix A are the partially exempt industries that we talked about that are considered low hazard, such as you know, dentist offices and service restaurants, gas stations, um, industries like that. And then the third criteria is the establishment had a peak employment between 20 and 249 employees during the previous calendar year, and the establishment's industry is not on Appendix A to Subpart E of OSHA's record-keeping regulation, Part 1904. So again, to recap, if an establishment meets any of the three criteria I just discussed, they do not have to electronically report their information to OSHA. So if you do if you do need to report or submit your OSHA 300A summary electronically, the login procedure changed in October 2022 for electronically submitting for the 2023 collection of the 2022 300A summary data. So you must now connect your injury tracking application account to a login.gov account with the same email address to submit your 300A summary data. Um, and I did write a blog on this called Update to the OSHA Injury Tracking Application, which discusses in detail how to electronically submit your 300A data if you guys wanna check that out. 
And then if you are required to submit this 300A data to OSHA, um, you have to submit that 300A summary by March 2nd. So for the OSHA 300A summary covering 2022 injuries and illnesses, you must submit that information by March 2nd, 2023. An important distinction with this whole process is, you know, what's recordable and what's reportable. So if we could, you know, kind of talk through that for, for listeners. So, you know, the, the difference between the two and, you know, what you need to record on your logs and what has to be reported to OSHA. Yeah, of course. So let's start with recordables. So anytime you have a work-related incident with an injury or an illness, you want to follow a five-step process to determine if that injury is recordable. And when I say recordable, I mean that the injury or illness must be recorded on the OSHA 300, 301, and 300A summary forms that we just discussed. So if your company met that partial exemption that we discussed, the low hazard industry or the size exemption, then you legally do not have to record the incidents, but I would still you know, recommend keeping track of those injuries and illnesses. So to determine if an injury or illness is recordable, we need to follow that five-step process that I was just talking about. So the first step or question to ask yourself is, did the employee experience an injury or an illness? If the answer is yes, then we continue on with the five-step process to understand if it needs to be recorded or not. So an injury or illness to OSHA is a vague definition of an abnormal condition or disorder. And um, they, they give some examples of injuries or illnesses, and that includes sprains, cuts, amputations, fractures, um, skin diseases, respiratory disorders, or even poison. So again, we first need to figure out if the employee experienced an injury or an illness. Um, and to keep in mind, so something like a near miss or close call would not be considered an injury or illness. So after you verify if the employee experienced an injury or illness, you need to determine if that injury or illness was work-related, which is the second step in the process. And the definition of work-related is injuries or illnesses that are caused, contributed to, or significantly aggravated by events or exposure in the workplace. And OSHA actually has a list of nine situations where an injury or illness occurs in the work environment but is not considered work-related. So you need to read all of those nine situations and determine if your injury or illness applies to one of them. So if the injury or illness is work-related, you then need to continue on with the five-step process. So after you determine if that injury or illness is work-related, you need to figure out if the injury or illness is a new case which is the third step in the process. And a new case means that an employee has not previously experienced a recorded injury or illness that affects the same part of the body, or the employee previously experienced a recorded injury that affected the same part of the body but had completely recovered and an event or exposure in the work environment caused the signs or symptoms to resurface. 
So with that long definition, um, so if the injury or illness is a new case, you continue on with the five-step process. If the injury or illness is not a new case, you may need to potentially update the old case on a previous OSHA form 300 log. So with the fourth step in the process, and this is the most time consuming, is to ask yourself, did the injury or illness meet the severity reporting criteria? So injuries or illnesses must meet one of the criteria that I'm about to talk about to be recorded on the OSHA forms. It needs to be death, loss of consciousness, days away from work, restricted work activity, job transfer, a significant injury or illness diagnosed by a physician or other licensed healthcare provider, or medical treatment beyond first aid. And OSHA has another list of 14 specific treatments as first aid. And if the medical treatment that the employee received is on that first aid list, then it would not meet the severity criteria and therefore not be recordable. If an employee received medical treatment for a work-related injury or illness not on the first aid list, it is recordable because it meets the severity criteria as medical treatment beyond first aid. So if the injury or illness meets the severity recording criteria, then of course the last step of the process is to record that injury or illness on that OSHA 300 log. So I know that's a lot of information, but to recap on what injuries or illnesses need to be recorded on the OSHA 300 logs, it's one, an injury or illness, two, that is work-related, three, that's a new case, and then four meets the severity criteria. So if it meets all those four, it must be recorded on the OSHA forms. And I would always follow this five-step process because if you jump around and do not take into account every step of the process, such as figuring out if it's even work-related, you could potentially be recording something that's not actually recordable. And as far as reportable now, I know that was a lot for recordable. For reportable, we must report work-related fatalities to OSHA within eight hours following the death of an employee. And you must report inpatient hospitalizations of one or more employees, loss of an eye, or amputation to OSHA within 24 hours. So if one of your employees suffers a work-related amputation, it must not only be recorded on the OSHA 300 forms, but must also be reported to OSHA within 24 hours. And then as far as reporting to OSHA, um, if you do have to do this, you can either visit your local OSHA office, you can call your local OSHA office, you can call their 24-hour hotline, or just send in an electronic submission, which I would recommend just sending in an electronic submission. And then I also want to discuss again that even if your company applies to one of the partial exemptions, which we talked about the size or the low hazard industry, your company is still required to report to OSHA if death occurs, if that inpatient hospitalization of one or more employees occurs, loss of an eye or amputation happens. So you're, you're partially exempt from keeping those records, but you are not exempt from reporting 
those severe cases to OSHA within those required timeframes. Something you said early on, I thought was was a really good point that uh, I thought we could elaborate on. You mentioned safety professionals and employers using this data. You, you of course have to you know re- record it and submit it to OSHA. But as you you know you're you're collecting this data, you're you're filling out these forms. How would you encourage you know employers and safety professionals kind of use that information to then you know improve their safety and health management system as they move forward? Yeah, so I would recommend that, so you collect the information on your OSHA 300 forms, and then at the end of the year, you can kind of analyze, okay, is X department receiving all these injuries or illnesses? And you can kind of focus more of your time on, you know, improving that area, or, or if it's a certain type of injury, if people are getting hurt specifically with um, hand hand grinders, like how can we really focus more of our time on this? So it's really great to look at the trends that you're seeing and um, and kind of really focus your time and attention on maybe putting more, you know, um, engineering controls in place or admin controls in place to uh, really focus on um, reducing those injuries that, that you're seeing. That's a very good point. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much again for coming on Brandy. I I really, uh, uh, appreciate you taking the time. As I said, this is such, uh, you know, a huge topic for employers and, and safety professionals. Um, it's, you know, something that's, that's required by the OSHAC, something they have to do every year. So I really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing this information. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Scott. Great to great to talk with you. Join us for Safety Focus in Orlando, Florida, and online February 13th through the 17th, 2023, and online February 20th through the 24th. Learn more and register at safetyfocus.assp.org. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at assp.org. And follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.